BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, greetings here from sheltered in place. Tom Hartman here in my home in Portland, Oregon. This is by Tommy Christopher. He used to be a regular on our show in D.C. Mediaite.com. Tommy writes for Mediaite. Joe Biden was being interviewed by Channel 6. This is in Florida, I believe in Tallahassee. Channel 6 News anchor Ginger Gadsden. This is what he said. I mean, you have a president of the United States that just introduced a proposal to wipe out Social Security. The head of the actuarial of the Department of Social Security said that if his plan for Social Security, Trump's, goes forward, the entire fund will be depleted by the middle of 2023. And then the article that Tommy Christopher wrote goes on to say, last week, Social Security Chief Actuary Stephen Gost. Now, this is just a a guy, right, who runs the actuary department, the one that calculates how much money we've got and how long it's going to last, basically. Stephen Gost sent a letter to Congress saying that under Trump's plan, if there were no other changes to the current law, if they just did what Trump said, quote, the Social Security Trust Fund would become permanently depleted by the middle of calendar year 2023, And the disability fund would become permanently depleted in the middle of calendar year 2021 with no ability to pay disability benefits thereafter. That's just if what Donald Trump has already done so far is allowed to remain in place after the first of the year. As he has promised will happen if he's elected president. Literally the end of Social Security. Now, I realize there are some of you uh, watching or listening who are going, well, you know, I'm 28 years old or I'm 41 years old or I'm 19 years old. Why do I give a rat's ass about Social Security? Well, here's why. Because even if you're 10 years old, you have, through Social Security, a multi, multi, multi multi-million dollar insurance policy that literally no company on earth would otherwise sell you. And that's called Social Security Disability. That's the fund that will vanish in the middle of next year if Donald Trump's current executive order continues to be the law of the land after the first of the year, after the 20th of the year. How does that work? You say, well, I'm a young person. I didn't realize I had an insurance policy. Here's how it works. If you get in a car accident, skydiving accident, I broke my back jumping out of an airplane. Thank God I didn't, you know, it wasn't a major, I mean, you know, compression fracture. So, you know, broke your back sounds a little, little uh, harsh, but, you know, I damaged a bone in my back jumping out of an airplane. Had it gone another quarter inch or so, I'd probably be paralyzed. And I was 20 years old when that happened. I had finally gotten Louise and my mother to come watch me jump out of an airplane. It was my third jump. And they watched me go splat on the runway. It was a dirt runway out in Mason, Michigan. And the ambulance had to come out and scrape me off the runway. I could not move. I thought I was paralyzed. I think it was mostly I had the wind knocked out of me and I crushed that vertebrae. But they took me to the hospital. I wore a brace for six months. I mean, it was rough. And had I been paralyzed at the age of 20, Social Security would have paid for my medical services, my rent, my food, 
and would have paid to have somebody come visit me a couple days a week and make sure that I was okay to turn me over or wash me or change my bedpan or whatever it may be. That's the insurance policy, the disability insurance policy that you have regardless of how old you are. There are children receiving funds under this policy. If you are a young couple and you're thinking, oh, we're going to have a child, you know, we're good, everything's fine, and we're going to make sure our kid never has an accident. But if your kid is born with a serious birth defect, I had a cousin who had a child born with a neural tube disorder, you know, where the opening was called spina bifida, the opening of the, uh, of the spinal cord was actually exposed. It was external to the body. So the, so the child was largely unable to move and profoundly retarded for her entire life. She died in her 20s, as so often happens with these. Every day of her life, she was covered with Social Security. This is seriously one of Franklin Roosevelt's great victories. And it's a program that Republicans have fought against. They called it communism in 1935 when it was put into law. Up until the 1950s, they regularly called it communism. Nowadays, they call it socialism. They think that word is worse. And people aren't really afraid of communism anymore. The communists are gone. Even Cuba is not communist anymore. You've got free enterprise and small private businesses there. But the Republicans hate Social Security. And they hate it for a very simple reason. It's the same reason that they hate our publicly funded fire departments. It's the same reason they, they hate our publicly funded roads. It's the same reason that Republicans hate even the idea that communities could have their own broadband service like Chattanooga, Tennessee does, twice as fast as pretty much anywhere else in the country for half the cost. They hate the idea that communities could be providing electricity or water or septic. Hey, if somebody can make a buck, it's got to be a billionaire. Government shouldn't be providing these things, and they hate Social Security for the same reason. They think that the retirement part of Social Security should be the banks, and that multi-million dollar insurance policy that you have through Social Security or your child has, that that should be something that you should have to go out into the public marketplace and purchase. And good luck buying a policy that will cover a 20-year-old for the rest of their lives when they're paralyzed for any kind of reasonable price. It pretty much doesn't exist in this country. And that's what Donald Trump and the Republicans are trying, not just, you know, it's not just a side effect of what they're doing. It's the main reason they're doing it. They are trying to destroy this. And thank God Joe Biden called it out. Thank God. On the line with us right now, speaking of economics, is Professor Richard Wolff, the co-founder of Democracy at Work, the author of numerous books, his most recent, Understanding Socialism, democracyatwork.info and rdwolf with two fs.com are his websites. You can tweet him at Prof Wolf. And Professor Wolf, I was hoping as we head in toward Labor Day here that you could give us a, an overview of the relationship and the nature of that relationship between labor and capital and government and business and all these different dimensions that we call the economy from the point of view of labor from the founding of our republic till today. No small assignment here, sir. Let me try in the, in the short time that we have. If we go back to before the Europeans came to our uh, continent here, we had very interesting systems of economics that the Native Americans had developed. They were collective or communal in most cases, whole tribes managing to work out as a community who would do what kind of work, how the work was divided up. Then they would meet as a whole and decide through debate and discussion how to divide up the produce. Sometimes that function was given to a council of elders or chiefs and so forth and so on. But a very different economic system existed here for centuries very successfully. The Europeans arrived with a completely different economic system, namely modern capitalism by and large, and we know what they did to the Native Americans. They didn't just get rid of their economic system. They mostly got rid of them physically by slaughtering them, a kind of early example of ethnic cleansing. The Europeans who came here set up multiple systems, small-scale individual farming, the famous New England examples, without employer-employee relationships, without capitalism. Everybody was their own employer as an individual. 
But that gave way pretty quickly, despite Mr. Thomas Jefferson's effort uh, to keep it going. And we had finally the system by the end of the 18th century pretty well established, employer-employee, not in the South. In the South, we had a different system, of course, slavery, master and slave. In the North, employer-employee, civil war, ended the, the slavery, destroyed it and replaced it with the same employer-employee. And that's been our basic capitalist structure ever since. A very small minority of the population have the wealth to be the employer, and the vast majority of us are employees. From around 1800 to around 1970, a remarkable story. This capitalist employer-employee system was able to raise the wages of workers every decade for 150 to 170 years. No capitalism was as successful as the American. It raised the standard of living of workers. They had to, of course, fight for this with trade unions and strikes. But they were able, because the capitalism was reasonably successful, to get at least enough of it uh, for them to have rising wages. All of that stopped in 1970. What came together in the 1970s was the following. Three things. Number one, the export of jobs to the rest of the world. Precisely because wages had gone up in this country, capitalists decided to move production to where wages had not gone up, where they had gone down in many cases, uh, China, India, Brazil, all of that. Number two in the 1970s, an enormous influx of automation. The computer replaced the worker. And number three, immigrants coming into the United States offering to work for lower wages. End result, jobs disappeared, wages stopped rising. The last 50 years of our history is a time when workers are ever more productive, producing more and more for the employer, but the wages the employer gives the workers have gone nowhere. If you adjust for prices, the average real wage of an American worker today is about what it was in the late 1970s. A staggering impact on the American people because they had gotten used to the idea of rising wages, rising well-being of each generation. And so they were caught losing what they had come to assume was the American dream. They went to work and did more work than everybody else. They borrowed more money than any working class had ever had until they couldn't borrow anymore and they couldn't work anymore. And that's the crash of 2008. And we're still living in an economic system that no longer functions. Only it took us 50 years or more to come to the realization that this system is now good only for the few at the top and has finally shown its true colors, which is a system that works for the minority who are in the position of employer and not for the majority who are the positions of employees. Wow, that was brilliant. Given that the whole tale goes south, at least for the American worker in these in the 70s and early 80s, and sort of coincides with the Reagan revolution and, and the, well, it was the Thatcher revolution in 78, this whole kind of neoliberal revolt, and, and Jimmy Carter had bought into it during the last two years of his presidency. Is it possible to have a capitalist system that doesn't ultimately get corrupted, that can keep some guardrails in place and protect workers? And B, is it possible if we were to set up an alternative system, say a system where corporations are not owned by stockholders, but they're owned by their employees, is it possible to prevent a system like that from being similarly corrupted? Well, I think the answer to both of them in the short is yes. I think in the 1930s we had the New Deal, which was an attempt to have the government step in and change the rules of the game, not in a fundamental way. The New Deal left the employer-employee relationship the same, but it encrusted it with all kinds of rules and regulations that made it a lot less 
unfriendly to the mass of people. But the lesson is, if you don't get rid of the employer-employee relationship, even when you make a victory like the New Deal, it can then be taken away from you, which is what the last 30 or 40 years have done with Reagan, Thatcher, and all the rest, right up to and including Mr. Trump. So I think the lesson is, you have to do the second thing you mentioned. You really have to end the employer-employee relationship. Stop this set of systems, slavery with the master-slave, feudalism with the lord and serf, and now capitalism with the employer and the employee. Those systems end up working for the minorities who control them, and therefore we have to make the break and reorganize our production system so it's a real democratic community that organizes and works in each enterprise, makes its decisions democratically. That's the only way to break the habit that has cost us so dearly in not having made that kind of change sooner. Remarkable stuff. Absolutely remarkable. Professor Richard Wolf, democracyatwork.info, rdwolf.com, Prof Wolf on Twitter. Professor Wolf, thanks so much for dropping by today. It's always great talking to you. My pleasure, Tom. Glad to talk with you. There has been speculation that when Trump was taken to Walter Reed back in November of last year, and Mike Pence was told to stand by. If he has to go through any kind of procedure, you're going to be the acting president. And he was hustled out of the White House. And the White House has an extensive little mini hospital in it with a full-time doctor 24-7. So they can deal with most things, right? But they can't deal with big stuff, stuff that requires MRI machines or CAT scanners. or I mean, they may even have a CAT scanner, but you know, big, big machine. They can't do that at the White House. And so they hustled him into this SUV and boom, unscheduled trip to Walter Reed. And there has been speculation that he had suffered a stroke because he's been dragging his left foot. You can see it, or maybe it's his right foot. You can see it in a number of videos where he's going places and doing things. He, for a while, he lost use of one of his arms. He couldn't drink a glass of water. I mean, stuff like this. These are signs of a stroke. But nobody, to the best of my knowledge... And I am being echoed in this across the internet. Nobody was suggesting that he had had a series of mini strokes. Now, in this program back in November, I posited, you know, maybe it's a mini stroke. You get these little tiny strokes that produce some small symptoms, and, you know, typically they resolve themselves, sometimes they don't. In fact, one of the main theories of dementia is that it is actually caused by the accumulation, the concatenation of a whole string over a period of time of little micro strokes that happen when, you know, that can happen as a result of genetic predisposition to them, you know, vascular weakness, or having been a smoker for years and years, which really seriously damages your veins and arteries permanently for the rest of your life. Or simply, you know, getting very dehydrated every night. A lot of people drink a glass of wine before they go to bed. They wake up in the morning just incredibly thirsty. Well, that dehydration makes you more vulnerable to little small strokes, you know, little tiny blood clots that form in the brain. You know, it's not always caused by a glass of wine, but you get my point. And so there was this question, and I was saying, gee, I wonder if, it's, if that's what it is. But nobody was saying, quote, series of mini-strokes. To the best of my knowledge, I, was, I didn't read anybody else saying mini-stroke. I was the one who was drawing that distinction just because I had seen that with my own father. I mean, I you know, saw this happen. So two hours ago, Donald Trump tweeted, and I am reading the tweet right here from the screen, quote, it never ends. Now they are trying to say that your favorite president, me, went to Walter Reed Medical Center having suffered a series of mini-strokes. Well, no, that's not what they're saying. What they're asking is if you had a stroke. But now Trump is coming out saying, a series of mini-strokes. Really? And then he goes on to say, never happened to this candidate. Fake news. Perhaps they're referring to another candidate from another party. Right. So it's mini-strokes, is it? Amazing. If he had the intellect and discipline of Tom Cotton, we would be full-on Germany 1935 right now. But because he's not that bright, and he's not that disciplined, and he's just a giant id, he's just a giant blob that is just constantly, me, 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 my, mine, mine, I want more, I want more. I mean, that's Donald Trump. 
Please love me. He's a weak, frightened little man. I get it, he's physically large, but as a person, he views himself as a child, as a victim, a perpetual victim. Anyway, Ellen in Newburgh, New York. Hey, Ellen, what's up? I'm calling from New York, the capital of anti-Trump land. (laughs) I just wanted to talk to you about the Lincoln Project, how it started out as Republicans defecting from Trump. It's evolved over these months into a American coalition. I happen to be a Democrat, and there are more Democrats getting involved, and it's just becoming more of like a democracy where people from all persuasions, all political persuasions are in the Ellen, I believe the entire leadership of the Lincoln Project is Republicans. That's their brand. We are Republicans who don't like fascism or Trumpism. But, you know, several of these folks have spoken out fairly forcefully in the last few weeks saying we are still Republicans. We still believe in, quote, individual responsibility, which means if you're poor, it's your fault. Sorry. You know, we're going to defend the rich people. We still believe in balanced budgets. In other words, we're going to use this as an excuse to fight social programs. They're still opposed to expanding Medicare and Social Security and things like that. They're still all in favor of big mm-hmm. corporations ruling this country. Right. I mean, you know, they've, right. they've essentially come right out and said this. Steve Schmidt and George Conway, you know, the guys who started this program, mm-hmm. and, and now many of the Republicans who have joined them, none of them have changed their philosophy. They're just saying Donald Trump doesn't right. fit into that philosophy. He's too crazy for us. And that's my concern right. is that, A, they are showing Democrats and Democratic strategists how to do good messaging, which is tragic that Democrats didn't have that ability to begin with, right? It just it just shocks me. Although there's been some good Democratic mm-hmm. stuff, but it's been mostly coming from people like Don Winslow. You know, it's been coming from, from outside the party. But number one, they're doing that. And number two, I think they're positioning themselves right now to be mm-hmm. a political force after the election if Joe Biden mm-hmm. is elected, which they're doing everything yeah. they can to make happen, so that they can yes. push Joe Biden in the direction of privatizing mm-hmm. Social Security and Medicare, push Joe Biden in the direction of privatizing mm-hmm. the post office, push Joe Biden in the direction of massively cutting social spending in the United States, because that's their agenda. Right, I understand that. And I think that that's how they're trying to set it up is like, we hate Trump. We don't want him in office. We want Biden. I understand that. And I wanted to say that I don't know if that's turning off progressives and they're, you know, less motivated to go to the polls, but we need everybody. Oh, I agree. We need everybody to be messaging on this. And, and I'm, uh, you know, I acknowledge the really great messaging that the Lincoln Project is doing. But my cautionary note is, let us not think that these guys are on our side. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, is not a lifetime strategy. It's strategic. It's short-term. And and I think that that's what we have to do. Charlie in Madison, Wisconsin. You need an address to register to vote. That provides a pretty good motivation for McConnell and Trump. They actually want people to be evicted. I agree. I think that's one of the reasons why Congress let the eviction moratorium expire, because the more people who get evicted from their homes, the profile, the economic and political profile of people who are getting evicted from their homes is more likely to be people who are concerned about things like food stamps or unemployment insurance. And those are things that the Democrats brought you. They're the things that the Republicans oppose. So if they can get people who are economically on the edge and might be inclined, therefore, to vote Democratic, to no longer have an address so they can't vote, (laughs) victory! I mean, this is just like Kevin McCarthy bragging about how his investigations, his committee's investigations into uh, Hillary Clinton is going to win the election. I mean, it's never about the issues for Republicans, or almost never about the issues. It's usually about how can they most effectively cheat, because frankly, that's the only way that they can hold power. It deserves repeating again. We have not had a Republican president elected by the majority of Americans since 1988. Online with us is our old buddy Charles Sauer, the libertarian economist and president of the Market Institute, the author of Profit Motive, What Drives the Things We Do, marketinstitute.org is his website, and Charles Sauer, S-A-U-E-R, is his Twitter handle. Charles, welcome back to the program. It's been a while since we've talked. 
I'm wondering how libertarian, I mean, the libertarian position on unemployment insurance has always been there shouldn't be any such thing, that, that that's government interference in the, in the private marketplace. How do you continue to justify that in the face of a pandemic? Well, I think that there's several levels to this. First off, we've debated enough. I think that you know that I don't want to just go from where we're at to no unemployment insurance. And if we look at the way that government responded to the pandemic, we would have to say or agree. I don't know. I don't know if you would agree with me, but I have to say that the best help that was given was actually expanding the unemployment insurance. There's a lot of things that I disagreed with in the first pandemic response bill, but the fact that it happened fast was good. I wish they would have done more for unemployment insurance faster because I think those are the people that needed it instead of helping out some of my friends that weren't employed, helping out me, helping out people that didn't need help. People that were unemployed needed help and they needed help quickly. Yeah, I've been taking the position for some time, and although the book was written long before COVID came along, but I've got a new book out, The Hidden History of Monopolies, How Big Business Destroyed the American Dream. And, you know, just making the assertion that if a big airline is being run in an incompetent fashion or an oil company or, I mean, fill in the blanks, if they're failing for, frankly, any reason, including this virus, that government should not be bailing them out. If they fail, it will create a hole in the marketplace that a thousand you know, young, scrappy entrepreneurs are going to leap into, and it's going to make the marketplace more vibrant. But, and it's you know, even beyond that, of- I think. I, I, one of my things is that if a business was failing because of the pandemic, it would incentivize them to actually go out of business or close shop if they knew their employees were going to be safe. So some businesses stayed open and continued to lose money just to keep their employees on the payroll. If you have a good unemployment system, which in my ideal world would be privately financed, individuals would self-insure themselves. But under our current system, it would have encouraged and did encourage businesses to make the right decisions. So are you officially renouncing libertarianism here on this program? No, I'm I'm a libertarian, but I'm a sane libertarian where we have to take things in steps. We can't just get rid of unemployment insurance in the middle of a pandemic. The fact is, is that we have unemployment insurance. And since the left has pushed that on us, we should use it for what it is instead of funding other stimulus items that didn't do any help, giving money to large corporations that didn't need money. That was not a good way to spend money when that money could have gone to unemployed people. Yeah, well, we're in agreement about that latter point, but let's say that your vision of unemployment insurance, that is to say that there should be no government unemployment insurance, period, full stop. We should go back to where we were in 1934 before unemployment, the unemployment insurance was first passed as a law, that you had succeeded in doing that, say, five years ago when you were advocating that in this program. How would people survive lacking unemployment insurance? Well, first off, people would likely have had it. In a system where there's no unemployment insurance, currently unemployment insurance is paid for. It's paid for by the employers. It's paid for by the employees. And that is comes out of the money that they would make in their salaries. So people are already paying for unemployment insurance. This isn't magic money that the government just pulls out of nowhere or pulls out of their well, Actually, it is, Charles. It's... It- a lot of it, you know, right now, almost all of it is, I mean, you know, is, is magic money that's being pulled out of the head. Well, it's actually borrowed money, but the point is the same. There are not private unemployment insurance companies and the unemployment insurance system doesn't run with a segregated fund like Social Security does. So we are pulling money out of the general treasury to pay for people. But again, the question, I, if the government wasn't doing this at all, from- are you saying that private companies would be doing this? Yeah, private companies would jump in this market in a second. And, First, and would you mandate would that? More money. You don't have to mandate that somebody sells a Snickers bar. People want a Snickers bar. You don't have to mandate that people sell life insurance or disability insurance. The fact is, is since the government is involved, the private sector has left the market. We're likely going to see something. But, well, hang on uh, just like a second, Charles. In- life insurance is cheap. And disability insurance is actually where individuals are buying disability insurance as a standalone product is 
vanishingly rare. I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I'd be astonished if over 5% of Americans buy disability insurance. So if you're making unemployment insurance an optional private insurance policy, it's gonna, and it's going to cost you more than life insurance, and you and I both know that, um, how many American workers do you actually think are going to say, yeah, out of my uh, $500 a week or, uh, you know, a pay period paycheck, please take, you know, 60 bucks for unemployment insurance. I don't think it's going to happen. And then you're going to end up with a situation where 80, 90 percent of your unemployed workforce as a result of whether it's, you know, the, the, the every seven year crashes that capitalism produces or whether it's the every hundred year pandemic thing. You're going to have massive numbers of people unemployed out of houses, you know, homeless starving. Yeah. This would be a screaming disaster. I this is my complaint about libertarianism, Charles. If you can explain this to me, and I'll, you know, I'll give you the next three minutes well, to do it, but the, well, the, the thing that makes me crazy simple. is that it's always fixing things on the back end. It's not anticipating problems. No, look, it, it's fairly simple. Instead of having made-up antidotes, we have actual studies. When people give their own health care dollars through HSAs, they spend more money on preventative health care. That is what happens. That is a proven number. When we look at what? Elections. But preventative health care is a different thing from losing your job uh, to a virus. I don't understand what you're talking about. These are, I believe in people. I understand that you don't. I believe that people are smart. And the studies happen to back me up. When people are given control over their own money, they tend to spend money the way that uh, we would hope that they would. Again, HSAs and preventative care are another way. I know the left doesn't believe in political funding, but all of the sh- all of the studies have also shown that political funding doesn't matter as well. That's where we've seen Trump win in the last election being outspent, what, two to one or maybe even three to one, four to one. We've seen candidates on the Not right. Not by billionaires and super PACs with dark money, Charles. Most Super PACs and dark money the media on behalf cycle. of Trump were massively outspending. But you've changed the subject here a couple of times. What do you do if only 10 or 15 percent of the population actually has bought private unemployment insurance and you've got a massive unemployment crisis? You just walk away? Well, again, I wasn't changing the topic. I was actually bringing in the facts and the studies that have gone with this. So, yes, I did have to bring up other areas, but that's because the left has killed the free market in unemployment insurance. And second off, no, before the government took care of all of our welfare needs and wasted money in the process, there was mutual aid societies. And that actually helped people out and helped people get through a uh, hard time. So you want to go back to the 1920s, the mutual aid society? Hey, if it was working then, it would work now. And the studies again there show if the government's not taking your money, people are willing to get six times what they were giving the government. Okay, Charles Sauer, marketinstitute.org is the website, and the book is Profit Motive. Hang on, Charles. This is the Tom Hartman Program. That guy always steps on me. Charles, thanks for dropping by. It's always good talking with you. Thank you. Tom Hartman here with you. Andrea in Reno, Nevada. Hey, Andrea, what's on your mind today? You left out a very major detail on the payroll tax cut proposal that Dump wants to mm-hmm. make permanent. By executive mm-hmm. order alone, Congress won't be able right. to do anything about it. If Comover Caligula makes this permanent on January 1st, 2021, the entire disability fund will be completely depleted by June 2021. No, by June 2023. No, June 2021, six months. And I I would urge you and anybody who's interested in disability and their rights, and if you want to Oh, the disability fund. I'm sorry. I was thinking the entire Social Security Trust Fund. Yes. And if you're fighting and you want to make sure that Biden gets in, please go to CNN.com. The opinion section written by President slash Attorney Nancy Altman of Social Security Works and read her Mm -hmm. article for full chilling details. 
Spot on, Andrea. You are absolutely on top of it. And thank you so much for pointing that out to everybody. And and this is one of those moments when it's a good idea to call your member of Congress, either call their local office or call their federal office, their their D.C. office at 202-224-3121 and say, stop Trump from killing the Social Security tax and using that to kill Social Security. Mary in Fort Worth, Texas. Hey, Mary, what's up? Well, thank you so much for hearing me. I'm a senior citizen. Most of my friends are senior citizens, and they are like a lot of Texans, Trump worshipers. But they are also, their livelihood depends on Social Security and Medicare. They don't seem to realize that Trump has said he's going to end payroll deduction, which will end Social Security. They don't seem to realize that the Republican Party has always wanted to end the New Deal, which is responsible for ending hunger, ending homelessness, and caring for the sick, and giving us quality public education. The Democratic Party campaign is not stressing those things. People understand Mm. that. They understand their livelihoods. It is important that this be the focus of the campaign, I think. I agree. And what's shocking to me, Mary, frankly, is that the news media is not talking about this every day. You know, Donald Trump has promised to end Social Security by 2023. The disability fund, as our earlier caller mentioned, will vanish in the middle of next year. The entire trust fund for people who are over 65 and retired, that will end in 2023, the third year of a Trump presidency, if he has that opportunity. And this is why it's important, number one, to raise hell with your elected officials. Number two, to get everybody you know registered to vote and make sure that they're actually going to do it and double check your own voter registration. And, and, and number three, to lean on the media and tell everybody that you know that Trump is actually intentionally right now, step by step, clearing the way to destroy Social Security. He's doing it enthusiastically. He's doing it proudly. Um, so one of uh, my know, friends, this, uh, one of my friends I, I persuaded to watch a video of Trump saying he's going to end the payroll deduction. That surprised her. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Good on you, Mary. Good on you. Thank you very much. Dave in Claremore, Oklahoma. Hey, Dave, what's up? My wife and I were talking about this Social Security thing. If we get kicked off Social Security, we don't have much hope. I know, I know I'm not alone in that. People yep. just don't. That's all they've got. Pensions are all gone, and, and that's all. We, and we've paid for it forever. My wife brought up the thought that, what about nursing homes? They'd be gutted. All those people would have to mm. go out because Social Security yeah, most, pays most of that in Medicare. Uh, no, it's actually Medicaid that pays most nursing home funds. But the Republicans want to cut Medicaid, too. A proposal that Donald Trump laid out and that is consistent with Republican proposals all the way back to Reagan is that Medicaid be block granted so that you say to a state, okay, you know, you used $20 billion with the Medicaid, federal Medicaid money last year. This is the money that the states use to pay for low-income people, children, and elderly people in nursing homes. You used $20 billion of the Medicaid last year. That's all you're ever going to get going forward. And what that means is that every year, medical inflation averages around 7% a year. Every year, they're going to have to cut about 7% of the people off the Medicaid rolls because they won't be able to pay for it. Bottom line here is these are all democratic programs. Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, every single one of those programs were passed by Democrats over the loud and unified objections of Republicans who called them socialism. And it has been the mission of the Republican Party since the 1930s to destroy these programs and ideally to force Democrats to destroy them. And they're going to continue doing that. And Donald Trump is is feeding that fire. And, you know, he's doing it because he knows that the right wing billionaires and the banksters will love him for it. And they'll throw more money his way. Hi, Tom Hartman here. In my new book, The Hidden History of Monopolies, How Big Business Destroyed the American Dream, I'll be taking you from the birth of America as a revolt against monopoly. Remember the Boston Tea Party? to the largely successful efforts of both Presidents Theodore and Franklin Roosevelt and other like-minded leaders to constrain corporations' monopolistic urges to the massive changes in the rules of business starting during the Reagan Revolution that have brought us into the cancer stage of capitalism. In the foreword by Ralph Nader, he says, 
This is the most important dynamic book on the cancers of monopoly by giant corporations written in our generation, end quote. It's the fourth in my Hidden History series, available where all fine books are sold. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Democracy starts with you. Tag, you're it. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Kathy in Pittsburgh. Hey, Kathy, what's up? Hey, I just wanted to say that I'm really displeased with this payroll tax holiday. I'm a federal employee, and I don't have a right to opt out. Every other employer and employee has a right to opt out. Donald Trump will not allow federal employees to opt out. So right. I don't have a choice. They're automatically going to take that money out of my pay. I mean, put the money in my pay, not deduct it. And then I have to pay it back next year. And if we right. don't have After a payback by May 1st of next year, we get penalties and interest on it. I, That's I, right. I, just, I can't believe people don't understand what this is. And I feel it's an attempt to eliminate Social Security. I, I contacted both my U.S. senators. I wrote to my HR department, and they pretty much said, that's too bad. You don't have a choice. I just can't. Yeah, I, so I for people who don't know what, people... what you're talking about, Kathy, Donald Trump, one of his executive orders was stop collecting Social Security and Medicare taxes from people's paychecks, FICA taxes, which has two benefits. Number one, it, everybody thinks that they're getting a raise in their paycheck, but it wasn't stop taxing them. It was, you know, I taxed them at the end of the year after the election. So at the end of the year, you're going to owe that whole amount, number one. And, you will. and it could be substantial. People really need to pay attention to it. So if they have an employer that will let them opt out, I suggest they opt out. Sue in Sonora, California. Hey, Sue, what's up? Hi. I just wanted to let you know, referring to an earlier caller who asked about the Supplemental Security Income Program, I'm a retired mm -hmm. Social Security claims rep. And that program is not part of Social Security. It's not funded out of the payroll tax. It's funded from general revenue. It's a, yeah, it's somebody a just corrected me on that on Twitter. and, and oh. Uh, oh, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that fund Pardon? pays for what? The SSI fund? Mm -hmm. it's, it's a welfare-type program that's for low-income people who are disabled or over age 65. Ah. It's not part okay, of Social so Security. We just that's administer the supplemental it. income. Right. right. We administer okay. it, but it's not part of the Social Security Did Act. that come along with oh, the Great Society? Does that, does that go back to LBJ? 
It goes back to 1974 when the Social Security Administration was given the job of administering the what used to be county programs for the disabled and the aged. Ah, oh, fascinating. So this was yeah. uh, this was Jerry Ford's work or, or Richard Nixon's. Yeah. Who knows? Yes, it was more so, like Ford. Yeah. Yeah. Sue, thank you. Thank you very much. I, I, I continually am amazed at the level of expertise among the many people who watch this program. It just blows my mind. Thank you. Thank you, Sue. Mike in Lomita, California. Hey, Mike, what's up? Yeah, I just wanted to disagree with you a bit about the recession having started in February because five months earlier in the middle of September is when the Federal Reserve started secretly dumping money into the overnight repo market, the intercorporate uh, short-term uh, you're right. lending thing. So you're thinking it actually and, uh, started back in, in, in 2019 in, what, September, October? Yes, in September. They'd also, we found out later, had been uh, been printing money with more quantitative easing, the same thing they did to get out of the 08 crash. And every time there's been one of these big financial crashes, you've seen these little pre-shocks that give a signal that the whole thing is about to come down because the people on the inside and in the nose start getting the willies. And I think that's what happened here in 2019. By the way, on Ma Rittenhouse and her criminal uh, liability, I think they might not have uh, an easy time proving her an accessory, but there is a statute in Wisconsin, as is most states, of contributing to the delinquency of a child and normally it's a class a a misdemeanor in wisconsin but if the result of the uh, contribution to delinquency is a death then it's a felony so i think she's Hmm. probably liable there that's interesting i i know that he's being held in a juvenile detention facility right now um in in illinois and i you know i would love to know more about exactly what's going on legally with this and you know who how why I thought it was pretty shocking yesterday that, you know, that that Trump would go praise police and essentially offer a defense for Rittenhouse, you know, the killer, and refuse to mention Jacob Blake's name. It just blew my mind. Well, it's really ironic to have someone advocating law and order who's never met a law that he chose to obey himself. Yeah, I, one of the amazing things is that he thought that he could reach a settlement with, with Mueller if things went south for him. I mean, he's been charged with all kinds of crimes throughout his life, as well as civil things. And basically the way he always gets out of it is by paying somebody off. And he apparently thought he could pay off Mueller. This is a guy who has no respect for the rule of law at all. We'll be back. It's coming up on 20 Minutes Past the Hour. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Sandra in Bennington, Nebraska. Hey, Sandra, what's up? Hi, I just had a question. I was arguing with someone online the other day about the Trump $300, you know, extra for unemployment and supposedly 100 from the states if they could pay it. She was saying that uh, that's on top of what the states already pay in unemployment. But that's correct. I, I just I wondered about that because an awful lot of people, they've already been on unemployment. They've, they've used up what they were going to get. And so they have none of that anymore. That's correct. If your unemployment benefits have expired and during the Bush administration, they cut long term unemployment from two years down to one year. And I think they gave states the ability to cut it even more because I know that some states it's only six months. So if your unemployment benefits have expired, you don't get anything. And if you are drawing unemployment, you would get the extra three hundred dollars out of the FEMA funds, plus the hundred dollars coming from your state if your state chooses to participate. And by the way, it'll probably take most states two or three months to be able to process this money, because instead of taking money out of the Treasury and doing doing it the normal way, they're taking money out of FEMA. And it's a whole brand new thing that they're going to have to reprogram their computers and everything. And, uh, you know, and and 
frankly, I think it's just a non, I, I can't see any state doing it. Nobody's going to see any money in their paychecks. And I think over the next few weeks, as people notice that their paychecks are still, you know, half of what they were or less in some cases, uh, because that $600 a week has gone away, people are going to figure out that Donald Trump has been lying to them, that he's just running another con, um, you know, which is what he's what he does for a living. This guy has been a con yeah. artist since he was a kid. Katie in Clovis, New Mexico. Hey, Katie, what's up? Coronavirus has obstructed my ability to find work. I was an unemployed student who was leaving school, and I was just starting to look for a job. When the coronavirus hit and everything closed down, I'm talking about the fact that the people who get $600 a week, etc., or $400, doesn't really matter, are all people on unemployment. The people who were not on unemployment, who were unemployed, just got $1,200. I am basically squatting homeless at a relative's house. He's paying for all my food. Uh, I had to take another degree, basically, to get student aid so I can get through this, and I'm going to have $100,000 to pay back when I get that done. The part of the Part of the national communication about this should be that all these people have jobs or they had jobs and they're getting unemployment. But there are many people out there who are not being counted who did not have jobs. Uh, what do you say about that? Or Right. Or who are eligible to enter the workforce because they just graduated from college or they just left their parents right. home. You know, they're, they're, they're just transitioning into adulthood and they're falling through the cracks. You're absolutely right, Katie. And on the other end of that, the other thing that hugely concerns me is that when the Republicans cut long-term unemployment from 99 weeks down to less than a year, now you've got people who are going to be rolling off unemployment, and uh, that's going to be very, very difficult for them as well. Katie, we just need to keep talking to our politicians about this and, and, and essentially lobbying them, and, and that's why you know I, I keep giving out the number for Congress, 202-224-3121. Katie, I wish you the very best. I, you know, Keep us up to date on how you're doing. Eileen in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Eileen, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Listen, I'm just wondering, you know, since President Trump has said that he would reduce the tax or eliminate the tax, forgive the tax, however he said it, um, isn't that a form of... Okay, but he said he would pay it back or you wouldn't have to pay it. So isn't that a form of bribery or buying a vote? And isn't that illegal? I would think so. He said you don't have to pay it back if he gets reelected. I mean, that's what he said. And, you know, and he said it on television. Susan in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Susan, what's up? Yeah, Tom, I was just thinking as you were talking about Trump collapsing the economy when he leaves, I understand, if I recall, don't the middle class tax cuts end on December 31st, 2020? So as we enter the new year in a Democratic elected uh, uh, everything, we're going to get blamed for the taxes going up. Oh, you're, you're, I believe that you're absolutely right, Susan. I know that the middle class portion of that $1.5 trillion tax cut from two years ago, the 83%, I think it was, for the top 5% of Americans, that's permanent. But the part yeah. for average working Americans, that expired after a couple of years. And I don't recall if it was the end of 2020 or if you have specific information and know that for sure, I'll take your word for it. Because I know it was, you know, within just a few years that it was just, you know, it was just something that they threw in so that they could say to average working people, yeah, we got your back, don't worry. But it was just a temporary thing. You know, it's a scam, basically. Steve in Topanga, California. Hey, Steve, what's up? I'm seeing Donald Trump as a union buster. He's trying to bust mm-hmm. our union. And he'll use criminality because that's who he is. And the United States has a long history of union busting. And the wealthy will back Trump, and the Republican governors will all come on board, and he'll claim victory. And um, he'll just be, you know, if he reads Howard Zen's book, The People's History of the United States, union busting has been going on forever. So I kind of take this pretty seriously. I would not call Donald Trump a union buster for the same reason that I wouldn't say that he's, you know, he's trying to do a Holocaust. I don't want to diminish the Holocaust. and I don't want to diminish union busting. This is a right. different thing. This is political corruption. He's, he's running the playbook of tin pot dictators. That's, that's exactly what he's doing. And they all run the same playbook because they're all about the same thing. Ruling without the rule of law and enriching themselves and their friends and punishing their enemies. That's what they're all about. And that's why they try to hang on to power because they know that they've committed so many crimes getting to power and holding power that if they lose power, their goose is cooked. 
And that's what Trump is up to. Yeah, um, I'm with you, Steve. I'm with you. Thank you. Revan in Grants Pass, Oregon. Hey, Revan, what's up? Hi, Tom. I wanted to ask you about uh, what you think about registering homeless people to vote. Uh-huh. So there's going to be a ma- major influx of homeless people coming up, and I just worry that a lot of people will not have an address, and how will they vote? All right. I, you know, Revan, I don't have an easy answer for that. It's, it's, uh, it, it, odds are within two, three months, we're going to have another four or five million homeless people in the United States as a result exactly. of, uh, you know, Donald Trump refusing to do anything about this coronavirus and, you know, and the intended economic crash that comes along with it. And all of these uh, moratoriums on evictions expiring. The one here in Oregon expires either at the beginning or, or end of October. I think at the beginning. And, and uh, October 1st. And the one in California, I think, is expiring in the next week or so. And, yeah, so all these uh, people are, are, are U.S. citizens. It's just, yeah. you know, I don't know what to do. I, I would like to, to help, but I don't know exactly how, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I, d- I don't either, and it's a good question for you know an election integrity person or you know somebody who's working in that field. Um, so, so something that I that I read when I was into this in like the '90s or something, but anyways, that that you could use as a homeless person, you could use wherever your residence is, is like a park address or a uh, bus stop address. That that was actually legal. So I don't know. That's going to vary from state to state, Revan. Every state has their own rules on how this is done because of the Tenth Amendment. So, you know, having a national solution for it might be tough. John in West Allis, Wisconsin. Hey, John, what's on your mind? I believe that the so-called Social Security holiday is not Mm -hmm. uh, just attempting to bribe the American worker. It's a huge, big corporation giveaway at 6.2% of, of the salaries paid out by these big corporations, they're getting billions and billions and billions in welfare from, from the federal government. It's a, it's, At least it's until the end of the year. And that's why I don't think well, that these yeah. corporations are going to stop collecting this money. And that's why I think they're not going to stop sending this money to the federal government because they don't want the nightmare of having. Uh, yes, it would be a no interest loan from the federal government to big corporations with payroll. And they may set that money aside and use it for other things between now and the end of the year if they want to. Because, hell, it's a no interest loan. But it does have to be paid at the end of the year, John. Well, that's only, of course, if uh, Dump doesn't get reelected. Or, I mean, if he gets reelected. <laughs> well, even if he does get reelected, it's going to take an act of Congress to to suspend that, and that's only going to happen if if the Republicans take control of the House of, Repre- House of Representatives. And I think I can guarantee you, John, that's not going to happen. Hopefully, you're right. Yeah. So Trump can make his promises all day long, but there are some political realities here that you have to deal with. Thank you for the call, John. Jimmy in Texarkana, Arkansas. Hey, Jimmy, what's on your mind today? The next best thing to seeing Biden win the presidency, which I hope he does, is seeing Trump have to deal with a Democratic House and Senate. That would be fun to watch. But but definitely Biden would be the preference. Well, what do you think about that? I think you're right, Jimmy, and I think that if if Trump wins the election by by you know rigging the electoral college vote, whether it's through the Twelfth Amendment or whether it's through you know whatever, the odds are still fairly strong that Democrats take the Senate. And if Democrats take the Senate, then I think you're going to see Donald Trump. Actually, he might not be removed from office even then because it'll take a two-thirds vote in the Senate. That's how they, you know, they were not able to get out either Andrew Johnson or Bill Clinton. But they could definitely make life miserable for him. On the other hand, if he doesn't win, you've got the uh, state attorney general for New York and you've got the district attorney for New York City both coming after him with criminal complaints. So, you know, he and the Trump crime family are looking at going to prison. So it's going to get real interesting, Jimmy. Thanks for the call. Steve in Noblesville, Indiana. Hey, Steve, what's up? Remind the people that Trump said if he gets back in, he's going to do away with that payroll tax. and Right, and Social Security Social will Security. be broke by 2023. Yeah. I need to keep reminding people of that every, every day. 
Yeah. Amen, Steve. And Medicare will be badly damaged. Social Security, the Social Security Trust Fund will be broke in three years if Donald Trump's promise to do away with the payroll tax is put into place. Tim in Aloha, Oregon. Hey, Tim, what's up? What do you think about this the last week or two? I mean, I, you know, I have a good education. You know, it's funny. You were, I just listened to one of your spiels. I own my house. I have flawless credit. I mean, I could go on and on and good education. But I have friends like me that all over the country, and they're scared. They are literally scared because mm-hmm. they go into their local towns, and they, these people, the, the misinformation is beyond comprehension, especially in the Midwest and the South. You know, I've got friends in Orlando and Florida that are teachers. They're scared. They are literally scared of what's going on. The fact that that lunatic may actually be real elected. When they say he has 43% of the vote, if if it was 4.3%, that would be too much based on what he's doing. Every time that guy opens his mouth, he's either directly or indirectly affecting people's lives adversely. You think about that, you know, with this COVID stuff, you know, it's a scary stuff. Except for the billionaires. Yeah, except for the billionaires, exactly, yeah. And as long as, they're, they, as long as they have that power, you see what I mean? Even if Biden and Harris get in there and Republicans maintain the Senate, you've got, you know, it's going to be a battle because they, they know they can put billions of dollars into the, into the system to try to, to, to run it back to where, you know, where, are, where we are now, you know. I mean, it, yeah. this is getting scary stuff. When you have to solicit funds to stay on the air and Rush Limbaugh makes $87 million a year, where do you think we're going to go from that? You see what I mean? That's scary. I do. I do. I know. I know, Tim, we're up against a hell of a climb here. That said, I think that for most Americans, I think that the hateful white minority, I mean, hate is not something that's unique to white people, but hate and power combined is unique to white people in this country. And that hateful minority is just that, a a minority. And and I think that, you know, most Americans of all races and all religions are good and decent people. The impact of leadership is real. When the leader of a country starts promoting something, whether it's racial healing or racial division, whether it's giving everything to the billionaire class or whether it's building Medicare and Social Security and things like that for the average person, when the leader of the country starts promoting something, you're going to have about a third of the country, regardless of parties, that's going to follow that person because they're basically low information voters. They're taking people at their word. They're taking what's being said for face value. You know, leadership counts. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 